Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Bob Garfield is away this week. I'm Brooke Gladstone. News consumers, constantly pelted with red alerts and shiny objects minted mostly in Washington, still may be puzzled by how we arrived at this place. That's because no tweet or talking head, pundit, or policy report can clarify the present. That requires a time-consuming examination of the past. Consider recent research suggesting that many white citizens fear losing status more than losing health insurance or even economic security. It's likely that fear was inflamed by Obama's presidency, Trump's campaign, changing demographics, Fox News, all that and more. But it's not new. As James Baldwin noted in a famous 1965 Cambridge debate, that fixation was spawned in Europe and brought to these shores before our nation was even born. It was the belief that Europe had the right to subjugate and destroy inferior civilizations. He called it white supremacy. When I was growing up, I was taught in American history books that Africa had no history, and neither did I. That I was a savage, about whom the less said the better, who had been saved by Europe and brought to America. And of course, I believed it. I didn't have much choice. Those are the only books there were. And he warned of the grave risk we all face in failing to confront that history. It is a terrible thing for an entire people to surrender to the notion that one-ninth of its population is beneath them. I am one of the people who built the country. Until this moment, there is scarcely any hope for the American dream because the people who are denied participation in it by their very presence, will wreck it. And if that happens, it's a very grave moment for the West. It's our defining issue, always in season and right now especially ripe for exploration. The argument over our past, our attempts to rewrite it or paper over it, are precisely what's led us to where we are. But how to take it on and where? Last spring, when we first aired this episode, there had been three separate stories all within months about an ancient event that led us to Plateau, Alabama, also known as Africatown. Along this muddy shoreline, the last slave ship to bring human cargo, human cargo, from Africa to the U.S. has resurfaced almost 160 years after it disappeared just north of Mobile Bay. Environmental and investigative reporter Ben Rains believes this is the resting place of the Clotilda, the last ship to bring slaves from Africa to North America. And seeing this sort of dinosaur backbone ridge coming up out of the water and with all these giant iron spikes and then charred wood, and I just had this overwhelming feeling of that's the final resting place of the Clotilda. Last January, it was reported across the globe, 52 years after the banning of the international slave trade, a few men launched a ship on a bet to Benin to buy more than 100 slaves from the king of Dahomey. Thus did the Clotilda ferry the last shipment of so-called black ivory to our shores and then was ditched and burned in Mobile Bay, most likely in the summer of 1860. They really found that ship? 
Upon further study, no. So, of course, I'm a little disappointed. It's better to be the guy who found the ship than a ship. Um, I feel like this A month gone. before the Clotilda was briefly found, Questlove, celebrated DJ and drummer for The Roots, whose first name is Amir, was exploring his roots on PBS with the historian Henry Louis Gates and was gobsmacked by a revelation. Now, Amir, this is an article that's published in a newspaper called The Tarboro Southerner on July 14th, 1860. Schooner Clotilda, with Africans arrived in Mobile Bay today. A steamboat immediately took them up the river. It's the last known slave ship to come to America. Your family settled less than two miles from an area, Amir, you ready for this? Known as Africatown, which was founded by survivors of the Clotilda. I'm frozen, man. You know, every African-American that we know wants to know where in Africa they came from and then how they came here. You are the only African-American I've ever met who could name the ship. I'm on the absolute last ship that ever came here. Questlove's third great-grandparents were Charlie and Maggie Lewis, both born in Africa. Charlie's brother was Cudjo Lewis, also a survivor of the Clotilda. The famed novelist and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston landed on Cudjo's doorstep in 1927 when he was 86. Quote, of all the millions transported from Africa to the Americas, only one man is left. Which brings us to the third story that launched our trip to Alabama. It happened just before we packed our bags. Hurston's book, Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo, was published 90 years after she wrote it. It's Kudjo's story, told to her over three months on his terms and in his dialect. How the brothers Tim, Jim, and Burns Mayer who bet on the smuggling of slaves, and William Foster, who captained the Clotilda, divided up the captives after their blood-soaked abduction and harrowing voyage through the Middle Passage. Captain Tim Mayer, he took it 32 of us. This is from the Barracoon audiobook, narrated by Robin Miles. We 70 days crossed the water from the Africa soil, and now they part us from one another. We can't help but cry. Well, Viking wanted to publish the book, but wanted Hurston to, as they put it, write it in language rather than dialect. And she was not inclined to do that. Deborah G. Plant is a scholar of Zora Neale Hurston's work and the editor of Barracoon. She says there may have been other reasons it never saw print. It was the Depression. Langston Hughes writes in his autobiography that the Negro was no longer in vogue. And then there is also the fact that Hurston had never published a book before, but I think it's really deeper than that. At the time, some African-American writers decried Hurston's use of dialect. Richard Wright said it was a sop to white audiences to make Negro life seem quaint. But Plant says that for an anthropologist, language is a crucial lens into culture and character, and that to deny could Joe Lewis his voice would have been just another act of historical erasure. 
I tired talking now. You go home and come back. If I talk it with you all the time, I can't make it no garden. You won't know too much. You asked it so many questions. Go on home. The black vernacular was not his mother tongue. He spoke some dialect of Yoruba. That was his first language. He has to learn this other language so that he can negotiate a world that was hostile to him. Anytime people of different languages are trying to communicate, they'll create a lingua franca or pidgin language. Now, when a generation comes that speaks that language as its first language, then it's a Creole. So there is a blending, in the case of Atlantic Creoles, a blending of the grammatical structure of a West African language system with the lexicon of a European language system. And it is the grammar that's the most important part. The grammar is what determines a person's cognition, their mental makeup. This is why when you blend the grammar with the lexicon, you have this combined uh, language of sorts, but you will still have an African worldview. Could you give me an example of how his Creole reflected a West yes, African sure. worldview? Sure, that West African languages have no verb to be. And so when Kosala says, my name is not Kujo Lewis, it Kosala. He doesn't say it is Kosala, it Kosala. Because in that worldview, there is no need to state I am, you are, he, she, it is. It's a given. Your presence is a given. Your being is a given. It doesn't have to be stated. It's already apparent because you're right there looking at me. And yet, he was hauled off to a place where his existence needed to be reaffirmed by others all the time. Yes. The Africans of the Clotilda were denied justice, so they made their own law. We don't want nobody to steal, neither get it drunk, neither hurting nobody. When we speak to a man what do wrong, the next time he do that, we whip him. They were denied restitution for the theft of their freedom and labor. Camp Tim, you brought us from our country where we had land. Why don't you give us peace this land so we can build ourselves a home? They were denied recognition of their humanity. Captain jump on his feet and say, fool, I took a good care of my slaves in slavery, and therefore I don't owe them nothing. So they made a new home, an island nation in a perilous sea. They would accommodate, but they would not be erased. Call our village African Town. We say that because we want to go back into Africa so And we see we can't go. Therefore, we make it to Africa where they fetch us. Up next, we go to Africa Town, where its defenders are still battling erasure. The three houses that I grew up in are all gone. My elementary school is gone, and my high school is not a high school anymore, and my college is gone. 
And then I looked around, my community was almost gone. I said, well, you ain't gonna take everything. So I, I do what I can to try to try to say, because this community is worth saving. It's not only valuable to the people that live here, but it's valuable to the rest of the world. Coming up, Africa Town's days of future past. This is On the Media. So here's something I bet every On the Media listener can agree on. The narrative matters. The stories we tell ourselves about our past absolutely shape how we think about our future. And that's the focus of our new season of the United States of Anxiety, a podcast from WNYC Studios. I'm Kai Wright. Join me as I investigate the unfinished business of American history and learn how it shapes everything about the 2020 election. Get the United States of Anxiety on Apple Podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Joe Womack had no ancestors on the Clotilda. His family moved to Africatown in 1910. But he is relentless in defending the place just a few square miles from continual encroachment and abuse. The truth is, there's not much he and his community can do. The mayors, the family that originally bet the Clotilda would succeed in breaking the international slave ban, still are major landholders in Mobile County, including many acres in and around Africatown. Perhaps because they're not inclined to sell their land, preferring to lease it instead, and we don't know to whom the mayors leased, but it would seem that any business with a plant to build or a pipeline to lay or something to dump can find a place to do it on the borders of Africatown. See that concrete and rebar and stuff? When they left, they just bulldozed the top and left everything underneath the earth. If there was any chemical leaks or anything, it's still there. When the smoke came out of the stack, that ash would get on your car. If you didn't wash that car at least every other day, in three years, it would rust out. Grinding up concrete that may have been polluted, selling it to people for the driveway. There was homes all over here to our right. Now you really? see, yeah, you see storage tanks and of course the big parking lot. At one time, they were dumping all the raw sewage in the Three Mile Creek. I mean, it was terrible. It was terrible. What the hell is that thing? That was a steel scrap place, aluminum scrap place. They have tar sands coming down the East Coast on rail cars, and so they want to ship it, bring it right through here, right through Africatown almost, yeah. Those nuggets were pulled from Joe Womack's three-hour tour. He's a retired Marine major, but a fully engaged environmental activist for Africatown. And even after 20 years in the Corps, he doesn't look tough. He seems to feel Africatown's despoiling like an ache. He showed me and OTM producer Alana Casanova Burgess the beauty of the place, its elegant mimosa trees and sparkling waterways, while describing its wounds. We was always a walking community. You know, they got the interstate going in and, and the bypass and all. So you can't get from one neighborhood to, to, the, to the next. You know, we used to walk through the neighborhood all the time as kids. And we used to have fruit trees everywhere. I mean, I used to get sick of fruit. No one ever stalled out here because you just walk down the street and pick, get you a plum, get you a pear, get you a peach, get you a fig, get you a persimmon, get you an apple. It was everywhere. We don't know if the ash coming out of smokestacks just 
killed off everything or not. I don't know. Now, right across the street, this is where International Paper used to sit. They had smokestacks that were two stories high, two of them. And those smokestacks were balloon smoke at least twice a day. When the smoke came out of the stacks, it was so thick it would, it would choke you. It was like snow in the month of July. Whenever the uh, ash blew, if, if you were out playing baseball or something with your friend, you had to run home if your mother was washing clothes because you had to help her take the clothes in off the line because if you didn't get those clothes back in, she had to rewash them. Back here is, is hog bayou. This is all hog bayou. Now, see that concrete and rebar and stuff? When they left, they just bulldozed the top and left everything underneath the earth. If there was any chemical leaks or anything, it's still there. And they weren't made to come in here and clean it up or nothing. When we first started looking at stuff, we went to the EPA, we went to the Alabama Environmental Services and asked for reports. They didn't have none. When the international paper left, all this was brown. And, and that was around 2000, so, so it's come back. And see, we want to reestablish ourselves to the water. This is where the slaves used to come back here and hunt fish. I pointed to a wild turkey that had just popped out of the woods. Oh, turkey's coming back. <laughs> I hadn't seen one out here in two years. <laughs> My goodness gracious, that's fantastic. You're really pleased, Joe. Oh, yeah, because, because that was a whole school of them. And then one, one Thanksgiving, we came back here and they were all gone. <laughs> I think somebody came and got them. And, wow. I mean, he probably came from somewhere, somewhere around here. At least he's probably safe till Thanksgiving. So we got a rich history and one that we can fight to preserve. If you've ever been to uh, Jamestown or Williamsburg, Virginia, we think we can do the same thing here. Can I ask you, what's, what do you think the lesson is of Africatown? Well, we think Africatown is, is a real American success story. It's a real American success story. The struggles were not only back then, but the struggles continue today. And people are still fighting for their freedom and fighting for their home and fighting for their rights and, and can't ever, you know, say the fight is over. You said that Africa Town at some point had 12,000, 15,000 people 15, here. 15,000 people. And now there are three. About three. So how is it a success story? Because it did build up to be as big as it was. Mm. But it still survives today, even against the odds. And right now, with, with being surrounded by industry and industry trying to collapse it, it's still, it's still pushing back. And we think it's gonna make a good comeback because it has something that America wants. And America is reaching out for history, for a good story. And we think we got a good, good story here. So Joe says they want to re-establish themselves to the water. That's Africatown's glory, its green and glistening landings along 10 miles of the Chickasaw Creek. The town itself is tiny and shrinking, with an apparent cancer cluster and accompanying lawsuit to boot. But there is a plan to build the Africatown Connections Blueway, to preserve the natural spaces, habitat, and waterways here, to build the community and draw visitors. And there was, in fact, money, 
$315 million in Deepwater Horizon oil spill money, BP money. But it was directed elsewhere, to roads, infrastructure, and other projects. Yes, some $3.5 million will go toward an Africatown Welcome Center and tourism program. But welcome to what? There seems to be nothing in the kitty to fix Africatown's blocks of tiny, dilapidated, and often vacant houses or to clean up the industry's mess. I've been watching the community just lose ground and lose ground and lose ground. And the guys in here, they, they make deals. You know, the guy, they come in here for your arm and you give them a finger. And then the next time you give them a thumb, and the next time you give them a hand. Then they come back for your elbow. They, they just keep coming back. They're not going to ever stop coming until they get it all. Joe speaks of so much love of this place. Even as he tells us stories of a lousy deal to run a pipeline under the school, and how the one artifact cherished by the Clotilda Africans, the ship's bell that warned them of rough weather during their voyage, was sent off some years ago to be cleaned and was mislaid, or more likely stolen. Every effort to preserve the past and celebrate the present seems to be met with an indifference so profound it borders on malice. Take the cemetery, one of the town's few remaining historical sites. The graves of the slaves are on sunken ground due to bad drainage and proximity to an ever-expanding highway. Many of the stones have toppled, they're chipped or broken, and they're set heartbreakingly close together. But that's just how it was. Now, most of your older graves are going to be on the side near the vegetation. Over there. Oh, yeah. Uh, closer to the woods. Now... When they asked, they expanded, the, the highway department bought that land, they began to expand the highway. And as they were expanding the highway, uh, one time they, they dug up some bones. And so they stopped digging and they, they uh, examined the bone. They said, oh, there was nothing but dog bones. Went back to digging. That's still the sign I was telling you about. <laughs> That's what they said, these dog bones. I never believed it. Now he directs our attention to the newer cemetery. It's, it's all it's, it's more clean. It's more, it's, 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 uh, the ground is level, but there's one big difference. The newer ones over this side, most of the headstones are facing to the west. And the older one, the headstones are facing to the east, where they came from, toward Africa. They always wanted to go back home. You okay? Oh, yeah. That's some emotional stories sometimes, even when I tell it. <laughs> We're just about through. The rest of it is riding. For all the incursions, all the assaults, he meets, he organizes, he does his tour, his public speeches. I've watched them on YouTube. They're simple, about fairness and respect, how it's wrong to snuff out Africatown like a spent cigar when it's paid its dues long ago and pays still. And though Joe is not related to those in the old cemetery whose graves face east, he's driven by the same longing for home. 
Nothing lifts the spirits better than shrimp, grits, and a cold drink in an unfussy bar called Kazula, owned by a descendant. There's a Kazula burger. Joe told us that when he was growing up, people didn't want to talk about the origins of Africatown. That was no surprise to Vicki Howell, who grew up a few minutes away in Mobile. She's president and CEO of the MOVE Gulf Coast Community Development Corporation, actively spreading the word about the Africatown Connections Blue Way. But when she was a kid... I don't think I even remember much about Africatown at all. I knew about Plateau. This wasn't talked about. <laughs> and most importantly, it wasn't taught. You know, I didn't know anything about really about black history at all. I remember the race riots at Murphy High School. I remember my mother telling me about Vivian Malone. They were classmates, and she was the first black to graduate from University of Alabama. And I remember Birdie Mae Davis. She's my grandmother's cousin, and she was the first black to go to Murphy High School. They had, she had the suit to get into Murphy High School. I just remember, I remember those type things. So that's how you knew black history? Pretty much, because I went to Catholic schools, and one of the things I learned was some songs of the South, and I remember the books. The song we used to sing, it was like, Oh, Mandy, pick a bill of cotton. Oh, Mandy, pick a bill of day. Me and my wife can pick a bill of cotton. Me and my wife can pick a bill of day. <laughs> that was my introduction to my history. I didn't really learn about black history at all. I didn't learn in grade school. I didn't learn in high school. I didn't learn in college. How did you learn? I learned because I wrote, I wrote the um, Civil Rights Heritage Trail in Birmingham. If you go to the Civil Rights Institute, all these signs you'll see about six feet tall, about two feet wide. I wrote those signs. I was a reporter of the Birmingham News. I covered civil rights history, interviewing people, reading books. I just learned on my own. I mean, I read a letter from Birmingham jail when I was 32 years old in my own kitchen. I'm thinking, I'm an English major. Why didn't I never read this? Why did I never study this? When did you get interested in the history of Africatown? When did you find out about its unique nature? Well, when I came here, the, the story I was told was this was a group of Africans who, after they got off the boat, they created their own community. So I was expecting to see businesses. I'm looking to see schools. I'm looking to see a whole intact community that's kind of like Wakanda. <laughs> it's been untouched by a colonialists. And that's not what I saw when I came home, and I was really disappointed. But then looking at the history of just the black communities as a whole, I saw that this is part of the same narrative. There is no such thing as independence if people don't recognize your humanity if they don't recognize your community, and if, they, and if they see, hey, I don't want to build this in my community, but hey, there's a black community over here, just dump it over there. And, and that's what I think the, the people here have been suffering through. But it was just sad to see it that way, especially knowing that this area, like my mother told me before she died, this is not just about Africatown, this is about all African Americans. A slice of our history, too. These people can tell you exactly where they came from. Most African Americans can't do that. I may never know where my family originated from, and so by preserving their history, we're preserving our own. And I really love what, this, um, what these people stood for, how they did what they did, how they built community. With, with, like you said, when they couldn't get justice from any place else, they built their own. And how, I don't know if I really kind of in my heart feel like African-Americans need to do the same thing, because sometimes I wonder. I look at after having the first black president, I was just thinking things would get so much better, and now we've regressed in so many ways. It's, it's really disappointing. Yeah, back, uh, backlash. And so... You know, after 150 years, you wonder, is it really worth doing it this way? Is there another way we can do this? Uh, and so there are some people who are actively looking at going back to the idea of a black nationhood. And there's some people who are talking about that. What would a Wakanda look like? A self-contained community 
how would it produce its own food? How would it protect its water? How would it just, just behave? I'm not saying that we necessarily go back to African ways necessarily because we are Americans, but we're Americans that seem like we have a target on our backs. In this conversation last May, I asked about the upcoming ceremony for the Blue Way Project to connect people to the water, to each other, and ultimately to their history. It's a celebration timed for Juneteenth, the day that commemorates the announcement of emancipation. They'll gather again this June. Saturday, June the 16th from 3 to 7, and it's going to be kind of a soft launch of the project, and there's going to be a ribbon-cutting ceremony. It's going to be under the bridge, under the Africatown Cochrane Bridge, the bridge that divides the community is where it's going to be bringing the community together under that bridge, oh. next to the river. The students created this wonderful plan. I thought it was just going to be on the water, though. I thought it was just going to be, here. here's a boat landing here, a kiosk there. But they've come up with something about how to integrate the water systems in the community and, and preservation, conservation, neighborhood um, development plan. Hopefully, this, this, this event will kick that off. Did it look a little more like Wakanda? No, it, was, it wasn't Wakanda, but it, it felt to me like a community being built from the ground up or being maybe rebuilt from the ground up. It can be whatever the community wants it to be. It's just there's a power, powerful people that still want to have their way with Africatown that may not include what we're planning on doing. So the hope is that Mobile will embrace this plan and it will embrace Africatown and see it as, I wouldn't say recompense, but making, making peace with its past. I said my biggest concern is right now is that, that, that all of this intention turns into economic development for the community, that, that we get these houses rebuilt, that businesses come in, that we get a new museum, focus on our school, and all the things that would be necessary to create an environment where people can make money, they can have tax revenues uh, and business revenues so they can create, generate wealth because this country's wealth was built off the backs of these people, my people. The wealth of this country, this world really, has been built off the back of Africa. We have to make sure that this community benefits from this. I want to see careers created. I want to see our kids better educated so they can build wealth, generational wealth, that we've not been allowed to build over all these years. That's why our communities look like they do. That's why the poverty numbers are the way they are. Because if we had been allowed, like Dr. King said, to have gotten our 40 acres in a mule, if we've been given a free land and assistance on how to grow on that land, how much better our whole country would be. So now... If the stars are aligning in such a way that that can happen, I want to make sure that that economic opportunity is captured in this community. City and that's in the city will prosper. So it's, it's like a rising tide lifts all boats, except for the boats that have holes in them. So the idea for me is to plug the holes in our boats so that when the tide rises, all of us get a chance to ride with it. And with public support from even outside the state, you think that's helpful? That may be the only way it happens. <laughs> because we're here in Alabama where we don't have a whole lot of help and a whole lot of support. We need to preserve this area. We need to be able to save our housing. We need to be able to save our school. We need to be able to save our cemeteries, our history. We need to be reconnected with our water. And we need to have healthy relationships, not just with ourselves, but with the world too, and with Africa. People in Benin want to make peace with us. They want to reconcile with the Africans that they allowed to be brought over here. They, they are genuinely sorry for that. So I'm so excited about the opportunity. The stars are in alignment. I, don't, I really don't know what it is. It could not be an accident that that African ambassador came here at the time when they thought they found, even if they didn't find the ship, he came. I've been told that a lot of people have been trying to do things in this town for a long time. Plans have come and they've gone. And I was talking to an elected official just yesterday and she, she was saying, you know, Vicki, people have been talking about this for 30 years. And 
and nothing has changed. I said, but what if this time is different? How fortuitous is it that Ben Rains, the reporter from AL.com, because of some uh, shifting tides and something, and it and here's the bones of this this vessel popping up. He said, could this be the Clotilda? It looks like it could be. It's in the right location. You know, and then on top of that, the ambassador Benin just happened to be in Mobile at the time coming to say, are we going to commit to this uh, reconciliation between our country and the Africa town? And that day, he did the absolution. I didn't get a chance to go. I hate that I didn't go. But I saw the video, and he was, he was crying. He said, the ancestors cannot be at peace because of what we did. I'm just begging them to forgive us because we sold them. Our forefathers sold their brothers and sisters, made their souls rest in peace, perfect peace. They should forgive us. I feel so sad. They, they can't rest, and we can't rest until we make restitution, until we make this wrong right. The Ambassador to Benin, the Clotilde False Alarm, the newly published story of Cujo Lewis, all drawing attention to Africatown, which is perhaps the most profound expression of collective loss and longing for home a nation riven by racism has ever produced. Since we originally aired this episode, the rapper Common has reportedly acquired the rights to Hurston's Barracoon with plans for a TV series. And just last month, divers with a group of archaeologists began to explore another wreck, this one with the exact same dimensions as the Clotilda. This can't be an accident. It can't be. It just can't be. What if this is the time now? And if it is, don't we need to take advantage of it? Don't we need to tell people about it? Don't we need to invite them to come help us make this a reality? Because now we can begin a true process of healing. The Africatown Connections Blue Way is a vision to unite people through water and through a great story. Africatown was birthed by a proud people wrenched from their land, enslaved for five years, and then marooned. Yeah, the Blue Way is about urban renewal, but it's about national redemption, too. Coming up, but what if it's not? What if it's just a distraction? That, uh, here's the lady what wrote this. If you look at her work, you would know she said it's a fable. If you go research her work, you would she, they just jumped on her about plagiarism and stuff. That she plagiarized stories, made up stories. That made up stories and stuff. But Kurzo Lewis didn't know nothing about where he came from. He was just a child. All of them were children. They don't know anything about where they came from. This is On The Media. On The Media is supported by Indeed.com. Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your short list of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at Indeed.com slash On The Media. That's Indeed.com slash On The Media. This is On The Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And this is the part about dissenters, the people who, for reasons political or personal, particular to each, do not believe the stories or don't engage with them, don't grapple with the challenges they raise, the agony of evidence in the face of aversion or pain, as we shall see. But let's start with this. That cargo that was on the flotilla survived, mingled, strived, and made a difference 
in this community and in Mobile County as a whole. That's left fielder Cleon Jones of the 1969 Miracle Mets, one of Africatown's leading native sons, in a video posted by local Alabama news site AL.com, shortly after what seemed to be the recovery of the Clotilda. Also in that video, Lorna Gale Woods. And I'm always happy to tell this story because as I tell this story, Tears can come falling out of my eyes unbeknownst to me because I feel their spirit saying, tell this story. Somebody else needs to hear the story and be glad that this story is being recognized in this day and time. That wasn't just a fluke. It was a real story. It was real. If they story can really be told if they find that shit. And it would mean so much to how people would view this area. It would be like a highlight for Mobile. Her great-great-grandfather was Charlie Lewis, Kujo's older brother and shipmate on the Clotilda, which means, incidentally, that she's related to Questlove. She was out of town at her nephew's graduation when we were in Mobile, so we found another descendant of the Africans said to have been on the Clotilda. He asked us not to use his name, but here's what he told us. You're not dealing with reality. These are my grandparents. As a kid, we had to look up where our grandparents come from. We had to find out where they come from. Because people told us our parents come on slave ships. You understand? And we smart. We had to go look that up. And nowhere we could find that. Department of Commerce. You got Fort Gaines and Fort Morgan. The government, after the Civil War, this place was locked down. You couldn't get a scooter up in here or nothing else up in this place. Are you saying that the Clotilde never came here? Well, all I'm saying is you use your mind and think. You use your mind and think. And all you got to do is go to the Department of Commerce. They have a register to every boat ever come into this country. But didn't he sneak in, I asked him? Stuck in. That All that's coming from Captain Foster's journals. So that's Captain Foster's story. You're not dealing with reality. You're dealing with somebody's story. They put their spin on their story. It's not the African story. It's not the descendant's story. It's somebody else's story. They want to make money off descendants, but nobody want to recognize the descendants. Not, o- not only that, the few descendants there is, they don't know enough. You talking and interviewing people, they don't know enough to comment on nothing. They just talking something that they hear say. They never went and found out. Where Kurt Joe Lewis come from? They never went and got his birth certificate. They never went and got his bill of sales where he was sold at. You understand? The same way with the rest of them. They never brought none of brought that up. Neil Thurston's account of what Cujo said. Cujo was a child when he come here. He was nineteen. He was nineteen. You know where he come from? He didn't come from no Africa. He's not. He's not even recognized with the rest of those slaves that's on the plaque. He's totally different slave from those guys. Just about everything is made up. You understand? You come here for a story, I'm giving you the truth. I'm giving you the facts. And ain't nobody gonna deal with the truth until you get to the families. So family, we have we have books, records, documents, but it's the family business. And we guard that because everybody making money, like y'all making books, but they haven't donated anything to the family. They haven't donated to any schools here. They haven't donated to nobody. They haven't set up a scholarship fund for the descendants of the Cotillion. They haven't done anything. So why should we share anything with anybody that don't do nothing for us? You say, why should we give up information to somebody that don't do anything for us? And when y'all come down here, y'all come down here, 
to deal with the story, but it's not necessarily true. That's a man's story named Captain Foster. It's not reality. He's not going to give It's certainly true that the log of Captain William Foster is a key part of the research around the Clotilda affair. But it's also true he could have gone to jail for his exploit or even executed, though the judges were lenient in Alabama. Still, our interview with the descendant left us shaken and confused. So we took a walk. I'm Charles Torrey, the research historian for the History Museum of Mobile. And if you look, you will find Cudjo Lewis's naturalization papers. That will tell you. They should be in the file. So we know that he spoke to people. That's not being denied. What is being denied is the veracity of his story, that he was too young to have experienced what he said he experienced, which is also contrary to his own account. He was captured, he says, when he was 19. So, uh, you know, that's not the same as being a four-year-old or a five-year-old child. Um, So there's just a lot of things that he's saying. And uh, you said that you did see the naturalization papers. I think so, yes. And if you saw the naturalization papers, well then, ipso facto, he wasn't born in the United States. But see, the original, the captain's account is right here. What are you looking at? I am right now looking through handwritten, the logs, the famous Foster logs of, of his trip on the Clotilda to get to, to capture people. They're photocopies, exactly. Um, I also see here an article written October 17, 1855, about the Clotilda itself, how beautiful it is and how advanced. Let's see if there's a transcription of those logs, which are a little hard to find. Maybe not, but uh, it says here, the Clotilda, the last slaving schooner from the United States, Captain William Foster of the schooner, the Clotilda, just, uh, this is written in his hand. They gave me... He found it. Oh, what, oh. What did you find, Chuck? Okay. The United States of America versus William Foster. Mm -hmm. Transcript of his trial for Mm -hmm. violating Mm -hmm. the prohibition against international slave trading. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But this is these are the. Here, this is the naturalization. This is the naturalization. Mm-hmm. One of them. It says here, Africa, Africa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tony Thomas, Archie Thomas. Uh, there, they, there they are. Charles Lewis, mm-hmm. Africa. Mm-hmm. Joe Reed, Africa. This is, these are the, uh, it's uh, yeah. also Kibbe. Those are the slides. Kajo Lewis. Africa, age 21. October 23rd, 1868. Okay. Well, are you fairly convinced now? (laughs) Are you convinced now that he did exist? 
that he came from Africa. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this is... Our descendant dismissed Sylviane A. Dioff's Dreams of Africa in Alabama, a meticulous account of Africatown's founding, as a fraud. Her documents, several of which we saw in the Mobile Museum, also frauds. He called Zora Neale Hurston a plagiarist, and, well, in fact, she has been charged with that. And he called Kudjo Lewis a suggestible child grown old. Newspaper reports, eyewitness accounts, official records, Foster's criminal trial— all frauds. The Clotilda, he said, would never have been able to enter the port of Mobile. He seems wrong about all of that. And yet, his larger point, the one to which he returns again and again, is as right as fresh air and sunshine sparkling on the water. And that is, this is not the real story. Like I'm saying, you, you come to a car wreck and you want to take care of the people that was hurt. But you, when you all come to a report... You report on the car. Just just don't the car mean something. And you leave the people laying out in the street dying. You understand? It's not about a slave ship or the last living slave. As a reporter, I see those as narrative hooks, reminders, paths to empathy. The descendant called them white people's stories, distractions. The real story being slavery's lasting impact, its evolution from Jim Crow to mass incarceration. It's about injustice, reparations, not Cujo, not the Clotilda. They try to find that they had a group here making tons of money. And what did I tell you about the car wreck in the street? They had people coming here, divers and everything, looking for it, and they didn't find anything? Because of what? Nothing they find. Do you understand? If you read Captain Foster's journal, he'll tell you they burnt the boat up down that Dolphin Island Park where they burned it up. You got me? So why are you looking for something that was burned up? Because they were working, they were running from the federal government. So, so if you read or believe the story, you would know the boat was burned up. So why y'all spending all this money talking about looking for a boat, and at the same time you're not giving the descendants nothing? You're not giving the descendants a dime. You can never have anything until you take care of the people that was actually harmed, the people that actually built this place, built, stayed in that community, and their families suffered with that community, and we've been poisoned every day. Chemicals in the air, chemicals in the ground, chemicals in the water, poisoned every day. But the way you all do it, y'all leave them laying in the street and report on everything but the, the sick people laying in the street. So whatever you do is not going to come to nothing because you don't, you're not tagging it as a group. It's, you're dealing with an individual thing when the group is what's, what matters, and that's where we come from, group, 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 you know what I'm saying? And, that, and that's, that's the biggest liability to our community today. It's not a group, or a, it's an individual thing, you understand? And that's, and that's, that's all over. Huh? So it's a group thing. It's not about me, it's not about you, it's about us. Same way with your report, it's about us. Y'all ready to go? Several people in Mobile suggested quietly that the mayors, who are an influential Mobile family, don't much care to hear these Clotilda stories discussed, and that some, at times, have denied them altogether, just like the slave descendant. We emailed and left messages for members of the family who are cited on property lease records. No response. Alana, though, finally did reach a mayor. Hello? 
Hello. Good afternoon. I'm, I'm trying to reach Annie Marie Maher. Who's calling, please? Hi, my name is Alana Casanova. I'm calling from WNYC Radio in New York. A- am I speaking with Mrs. Maher? Yes. Hi. Um, my name is Alana. I'm a reporter with a show called On the Media. And we're doing a story about Africa Town near uh, Mobile. Yes, and we have nothing to say. This, surely, is the most common kind of dissent. Having nothing to say, saying nothing, doing nothing. Being closed to stories of what we haven't experienced, of, say, poverty, racism, or fear. On the Media has lately devoted much of its time to examining the stories we tell ourselves. But of course, just as important, maybe even more so, are the stories we adamantly refuse to hear. on this episode of On the Media was done by Alana Casanova-Burgess with help from Jesse Brenneman, Micah Lowinger, Leah Fetter, and John Hanrahan. And our show was edited by our executive producer, Katya Rogers. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Bob Garfield will be back next week. I'm Brooke Gladstone. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio. Behold the shepherd tone. The Tinkerbell effect. Hillbilly humanism. The Overton window. Hyper objects. The Bill Gates problem. The Zuckerberg delusion. We've learned a lot this bewildering year. Monopoly and monopsony. Monopsony? Um, monopsony is where there's only one buyer as opposed to only one seller. Uh Uh-huh. And so, as 2018 draws to a close, we've assembled a glossary of new terms. It's our year-end review, and you'll find it on our social media channels and in our newsletter. Over the next few weeks, we'll revisit ideas like apodophobia, the public trust, parasocial relationship. The anti-bandwagon fallacy is something I kind of made up to explain a tendency where a news item's truth content actually diminishes for people as more accusations emerge. You don't want to miss out on these. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and go to onthemedia.org to subscribe to our newsletter.